Shabbat Shalom and greetings to all our friends, brethren, and family around the world. This is that great day of the feast, the eighth day of the feast, the last great day. God reveals awesome truth through this day. In the first century A.D., during Christ's ministry, there was a ceremony called the water-pouring ceremony. The priest would come from the temple down to the pool of Siloam and pour a pitcher of water. Some of us have had the opportunity in Jerusalem of traveling from Gihon Spring through Hezekiah's Tunnel to the Pool of Siloam. You may be familiar with that scripture. I hope you all are in John, the seventh chapter, if you'll turn there. Jesus was referring to the water pouring, but he was giving the symbolic meaning of that water. John, the seventh chapter, verse 37. On the last day, that great day of the feast, it was a high day. Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This is looking forward to a time when all the world will have an opportunity for salvation. And, of course, it applies to us every day that God, I hope you are praying, that God will give you his Spirit and His Spirit will flow out from you as rivers of living water every day in worshiping God, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving your neighbors as yourself. We have been blessed with this wonderful understanding of the holy days and the plan that God is working out for all humanity, a plan that few on the face of the earth understand because they are not keeping the annual festivals. The first festival is the Passover, when we are reconciled to God by the death of his son. The Passover lamb was slain, as it says in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 7, Christ, our Passover, sacrifice for us. And then the second festival, the days of unleavened bread, that show that we need to overcome human nature and replace the leaven of malice and wickedness with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Again, signifying replacing human nature with God's divine nature. And then we come to the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Harvest, of first fruits. And, of course, this symbolizes the first fruits of God's plan. And God poured out his Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. We are begotten by God's Holy Spirit, and we have the power to overcome and to replace that human nature with divine nature. We pray that God will create in us his perfect and righteous character. Then we come to the middle feast day, the holy day of the feast of trumpets, the memorial of the blowing of trumpets, with pictures the day of the Lord, not just the seventh trumpet, but all seven trumpets. And we know, of course, Revelation eleven fifteen that the seventh trumpet sounds, announcing that the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of our Christ. And the first resurrection takes place, and we are changed from mortal to immortal. We are glorified, become God's immortalized children. We're born into the family and the kingdom of God at the last trump. And then, of course, on the tenth day of the seventh month is the Day of Atonement, when Satan will put away and mankind will have its first genuine opportunity for salvation. 
Then we come to the Feast of Tabernacles, picturing the 1,000-year millennial rest when Jesus will rule as King of kings and Lord of lords, and the saints will assist as kings, priests, and judges. And then we come to the last great day, that time when the rest of the world that has been blinded will have its first genuine opportunity for salvation. Let's turn to Leviticus, the 23rd chapter, Leviticus 23. God, of course, instituted the seven festivals and the seven holy days. Leviticus, the 23rd chapter, starting with verse 33. Then the Eternal spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be the feast of tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. That was under the Levitical priesthood. So we again offer spiritual sacrifices. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation. So understand that this is that eighth day of the feast. Again, he says in verse 39, Also on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the eternal for seven days. On the first day there shall be a Sabbath rest, and on the eighth day a Sabbath rest. This day is that eighth day. And so he goes on to say in verse 41, You shall keep it as a feast to the eternal for seven days of the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. And we have been celebrating before the eternal, rejoicing in his truth and in the meaning of these days. He says in verse 44, So Moses declared to the children of Israel the feasts of the eternal. So Jesus kept the Feast of Tabernacles. He set us an example for us. Let's turn to that in John, the seventh chapter. We already read John chapter 7, verse 37 and 38. But notice that in the earlier part of the chapter, his brothers were taunting him, and Jesus told them to go up to the feast. Verse 7, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its works are evil. Verse 8 of John 7, you go up to this feast. Jesus commanded his brothers to go to the feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet come, fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But notice verse 10, but when his brothers had gone up, he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. So Jesus went up to the feast, he set us an example, and we are to follow that example that he set. Now what is the meaning of the last great day? It's interesting that Gibbon, Edward Gibbon, in his famous The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 1, comments on the belief of the first century church. This is on page 403. Gibbon writes, quote, the ancient and popular doctrine of the millennium was intimately connected with the second coming of Christ. As the works of the creation had been finished in six days, their duration and their present state, according to a tradition which was attributed to the prophet Elijah, was fixed to 6,000 years. By the same analogy, it was inferred that this long period of labor and contention 
which was now almost elapsed, would be succeeded by a joyful Sabbath of a thousand years. And we've seen through the Feast of Tabernacles that we are picturing the millennial rest when all nations will be under the government and the kingdom of God. Let me repeat that. Gibbon continues to write that which was now almost elapsed, which be seated, succeeded by a joyful Sabbath of a thousand years. Now listen to this. And that Christ with a triumphant band of saints and the elect who had escaped death or who had been miraculously revived, that is, there in the first resurrection, would reign upon earth till the time appointed for the last and general resurrection. So the first century church, according to this historian Edward Gibbon, is saying that the early church believed in the last and general resurrection. We refer to that as the white throne judgment. How is one judged? How will that take place in the white throne judgment? Is it a sentencing or is it something that takes place over a period of time? We can get a hint of that in 1 Peter 4, verse 17. Let's turn to 1 Peter 4 and verse 17. Again, we are under judgment now, and the judgment we're experiencing takes place over a lifetime. 1 Peter 4 and verse 17. Peter writes, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? So we are under judgment, and judgment can be a positive experience as God helps us to grow, to overcome, to face our trials and face our overcome our battles, and to honor in God every day in our life as we strive to live by every word of God and as we strive to overcome our human nature. But judgment is on the house of God. All the churches of God are under judgment now. And we are striving to fulfill Christ's mission to the church and to honor and glorify him and to fulfill that mission throughout this judgment period. So, in other words, judgment takes place over a period of time. It's not just a moment in time where a sentence is exacted. It is a process over a period of time. Let's take a look at the white throne judgment on Revelation, the 20th chapter. Revelation 20, starting with verse 4. And, of course, this follows the Feast of Tabernacles. As we see, the millennium is concluded. Um, Christ has come back. The white throne judgment is instituted here in Revelation 20. Let's start with verse 4. He's talking about the saints reigning with Christ for a thousand years. Revelation 20, verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and they had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. That's our calling, and that's what we've been celebrating throughout the Feast of Tabernacles the last seven days. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. So here is a statement, a parenthetical statement, that is saying here is a resurrection, but now they 
there is another resurrection. This is the first resurrection referring to the saints ruling with Christ for a thousand years. So if there's a first resurrection, then there's a a second resurrection, and that takes place at the end of the thousand years. For the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. So that will be the second resurrection. Let's turn to uh, look down here in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. Now, if they're dead standing before God, this is a resurrection. It's a resurrection to physical life. We'll see in a moment as we turn to Ezekiel 37. Continuing in verse 11, verse 12. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. The Greek is Biblia. In other words, God, God's word, the Bible, is open to their understanding for the first time. According to their works, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. So here is a time of a judgment period. And uh, these are the rest of the dead. Who are the rest of the dead? As it mentions back here in verse 5. Those who are not in the first resurrection. Those who are going to have an opportunity for life. And that's the wonderful meaning of this last great day. That those millions and billions of people over the millennia now have an opportunity for salvation. Let's turn to Ezekiel, the 37th chapter. Ezekiel 37. And here we find an incredible resurrection that takes place. This is a resurrection to physical life, obviously, as uh, some of you are familiar with the dry bones that live. Ezekiel writes, chapter 37, verse 1, The hand of the Eternal came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Eternal and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. Then he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? Imagine how would you answer if you were Ezekiel. So I answered and said, O Lord Eternal, you know. Again he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord Eternal to those bones, Surely I will cause breath, breath, surely I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. Verse 6 of Ezekiel 37, I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So here is going to be an awesome opportunity, and we wonder if uh, Ezekiel will actually have that honor, have that privilege, because God says to Ezekiel, speak to these bones. What an incredible event that will be. Notice later on in verse 9, And he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord Eternal, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. And they became an exceedingly great army. The end of verse 10. And he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. 
They indeed say, our bones are dry, our hope is lost, we ourselves are cut off. But verse 13, then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from my graves. I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Eternal, have spoken it and performed it, says the Eternal. And then he goes on in the next couple verses to mention and to prophesy that the two houses, the house of Judah and the house of Israel, will become one. And by analogy, it's by one stick, as he says in verse 16. As for you, son of man, take a stick for yourself and write on it, for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write on it, for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. Verse 17, Ezekiel 37. Then join them one to another for yourself into one stick, and they will become one in your hand. So those conflicts that have taken place between the house of Judah and the house of Israel will finally end. They will be reconciled when they're resurrected and, of course, become one stick, as God says to the prophet Ezekiel. So they will be reconciled. During the white throne judgment, everyone will be under judgment. Individuals cannot accuse others because everyone will be guilty of the death penalty and they will have to understand their own sins, be given an opportunity to repent of their own sins, and then, of course, once they're reconciled to God, can be reconciled to one another. And today we have those conflicts throughout history. The Sunnis and the Shiites, the Tutsis and the Hutus, the Israelites and the Palestinians have had those conflicts. But they will be reconciled. Notice this in Isaiah. Turn now to Isaiah, the 19th chapter. Again, a very inspiring prophecy of reconciliation among nations. Isaiah, the 19th chapter, and verse 22. The Eternal will strike Egypt. He will strike and heal it. They will return to the Eternal, and he will be entreated by them and heal them. In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrian will come to Egypt, and the Egyptian into Assyria, and the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. Now this is at the beginning of the millennium, but it's still typical of the reconciliation that will take place during the white throne judgment. Isaiah 19, verse 24. In that day Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria. They've been enemies in the past, a blessing in the midst of the land. Now they are reconciled. They are three that God focuses on, and he says, gives him a blessing in verse 25, whom the eternal of hosts shall bless, saying, blessed is Egypt, my people. Can you imagine that? And Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. The cycle of violence has gone on for millennia. Doonesbury is the comic strip, is rather a commentary on some of those conflicts. This is a comic strip showing an American in Iraq along with a Shiite soldier, an Iraqi Shiite soldier. And so the American is in a Humvee, in a military vehicle, 
with his compatriot here, a, uh, an Iraqi soldier. And the American says, okay, that's the safe house, the big white building at the end of the street. And the Iraqi says, and excuse the language here, I know this house, this owner is Sunni scum. And the American says, oh yeah? And uh, he goes on to say, well, Intel wants us to capture the guy alive, the American tells the Sunni. And the, I mean the Shiite. And the Iraqi Shiite says, this will not be possible. I am sworn to vengeance. And the American says, why? What did he ever do to you? And the uh, Iraqi says, a member of his family killed a member of mine. And the American said, what? When did this happen? And the Iraqi says, 1387. <laughs> and the American says, what is the matter with you people? This is illustration of that cycle of violence that here something that happened between two religious groups, the Shiites and the Sunnis, back in 1387, the cycle of violence, of violence and revenge, violence, revenge, that has continued even up to our current day. God will end that cycle of violence in the white throne judgment. And we thank God for that reconciliation because everyone will be under judgment during that particular period of time. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians, the 6th chapter, 2 Corinthians 6. Is this the only day of salvation? In fact, we have a booklet by that title. Is this the only day of salvation? And as we've mentioned before in sermons, that has been one of the most uh, vital and uh, perhaps controversial doctrines that we've preached on the telecast. And we have three times been rejected by television stations or our contract curtailed because the board of that particular television station believed in the once saved, always saved, this is the only day of salvation. And we talk about the white throne judgment. When we talk about the opportunity of salvation for all those humans who have been blinded, that somehow upsets these mainstream Protestants who say this is the only day of salvation. And it doesn't matter whether people uh, don't understand or have never heard the name of Jesus Christ, they're going to burn in hell forever. An abominable doctrine, an anti-biblical doctrine. When God blinds someone, he does it in mercy so that he may have mercy on them later on in the white throne judgment. So 2 Corinthians, the sixth chapter, let's read that, 2 Corinthians 6 and starting in verse 1. We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Now, those who uh, talk about salvation is only through grace must admit that grace can be accepted in vain, so says your Bible. For he says, in an acceptable time I have heard you. In the day of salvation I have helped you. In the original, in the Isaiah, from which this is quoted, it is in a day of salvation. Now, for those who are called in this day and age and who are held accountable, it is our day of salvation. But it is a day of salvation for the whole world. 
Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Well, it can be translated in a day of salvation. How can anyone be saved if he or she is spiritually blinded? And does God spiritually blind people? Why would he spiritually blind people in order to put them in an eternal burning hellfire? Of course, he does not do that. And there is not an eternal burning hellfire. There is the fire that will encompass the whole earth in which the incorrigibly wicked will be thrown. And that will be the second death. We'll talk about that a little later. So why would God condemn to hellfire billions of people who've never heard the gospel? And Jesus said in Mark 1, verse 15, Repent and believe in the gospel. Again, let me ask you, has God ever blinded anyone spiritually or allowed them to be blinded? Turn to Romans, the 11th chapter. Romans 11. If they're blinded, they can't be saved at this particular period of time. Romans 11, starting with verse 7. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it. And, note this, again, Romans 11, verse 7, and the rest were blinded. They were blinded spiritually. Just as it is written, God has given the spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. So God has allowed Israel to be blinded. Again, it's a symbol of what can happen to other nations as well, not just, of course, the Israelites. But let's read that in verse 25. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness, in part, has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. There is coming a time during the millennium when all Israel will be saved. And you read about the second exodus in Isaiah 11 and Ezekiel 36, when God will replace that heart of stone with a heart of flesh, and he will give them his spirit and teach them judgments and statutes. Verse 32 of Romans 11, For God has committed them to all disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. I've referred to that earlier. Why does God give them blindness now? That he might have mercy on them all later, in the white throne judgment, or in the millennium, as the case may be. And Paul writes here in verse 37, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. God knows when an individual needs to be called, whether in this day and age, whether during the millennium, or in the white throne judgment. How unsearchable are his ways. God's plan of salvation is awesome and wonderful. So we've seen that God allows individuals to be blinded and not be in the first resurrection, not be called at this period of time in this dispensation. Who will be in the white throne judgment? 
Who will be in this general resurrection? Remember, Edward Gibbon referred to the last in general resurrection. Let's turn to Matthew, the 10th chapter. We'll take a look at a few examples of Jesus' statements, who will be in the general judgment, or in other words, in the white throne judgment. Matthew 10, starting with verse 13. Matthew 10, starting with verse 13. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. He's giving instructions to his apostles as they go out into the world. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. Verse 14, Matthew 10. And whoever will not receive nor hear your words when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Verse 15, a very important verse here in Matthew 10. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for whom? For the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Did we hear correctly? It will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment. They will have an opportunity for salvation. Let's, uh, of course, they, they will have remembered the burning flesh when they were judged when God poured out fire and brimstone from heaven upon them, they experienced torment. They experienced the penalty of lasciviousness, the penalty of evil and lascivious fleshly activity and sin. And but so when they come up with the resurrection, they will remember that. And of course, God tells us in Galatians 6 that he that sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but those who sow to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Let's turn and just follow the next page. You might mark these in your Bible, uh, Matthew 10, Matthew 11, and Matthew 12. Give, give us the answer to the question, at least some samples, of who will be in the white throne judgment. We've just seen that Sodom and Gomorrah will have tolerable understanding in that judgment. Now let's uh, go on here. Well, in passing, let's notice verse 23. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly, I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And God's church is striving to preach the gospel throughout the world and including the cities of Israel. Matthew, the 11th chapter, and start in verse 20. The heading is, Woe to the impenitent cities. Verse 20, Then he, Jesus, began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done. Why? Because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done, where? In Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So you cities are going to be held more accountable because they heard the preaching of Jesus. Those cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida. Verse 22, Matthew 11. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Who will be in the white throne judgment? Sodom and Gomorrah, Tyre and Sidon. All right, let's see who else will be in there. I mentioned chapter 10, chapter 11. Now let's look at chapter 12, starting with verse 38. Again, another 
insight into a sampling of who will be in the white throne judgment. Of course, it's the rest of the dead, all who are not in the first resurrection. Matthew, the 12th chapter, starting with verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Mainstream Christianity, professing Christianity, denies that sign in the main. Now notice, who is going to be in the white throne judgment? Verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. So again, Sodom and Gomorrah, Tyre and Sidon, the people of Nineveh. And who else? Verse 42, the queen of the south or the queen of Sheba will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. So here are these wonderful indications by Jesus of the general judgment, that final judgment that will take place, and those individuals who will be in it. And who knows how many there will be You think they're Billions of people over the history of mankind from the time of Adam until now. The multitudes of people who drowned in Noah's flood. And then the billions of people over the history of of the earth that have never heard the name of Christ, who've never had an opportunity for salvation. And of course, we sometimes like to contemplate on the question of talking with some of these great historic figures of the past. Who would you like to talk to? I asked my wife one time, and she said, uh, I'd like to talk to Abraham Lincoln, or I would like to talk to Martha Washington or Queen Victoria. So all of the very interesting characters coming up in the white throne judgment. And, of course, Jesus said those who were first would be last, and those who were last would be first. So we look forward to that time when all of those individuals will be in the white throne judgment. And personally, I look forward to seeing my father and mother in the white throne judgment. And I think about my family now, even my seven or eight cousins that I had the opportunity of seeing last year up in uh, Connecticut, Massachusetts. And you just wonder, what will it be like when they come up in the white throne judgment, if they're not called now, and if they're not given the opportunity for salvation now, Will they remember Cousin Richard? And how will they react when they see Richard as a glorified king and priest? And Christ says, well, my servant Richard here uh, talked to you back there in 2005, 6, 7, and 2010. And, uh, and they'll say, well, wait a minute, I don't know about that. No, we need to be the lights of the world now. We need to be the ambassadors of Christ now so that when people come up in the resurrection, all those with whom we come in contact, and we realize when we make mistakes, when we offend people unnecessarily, we can be a stumbling block 
to those who come up in the white throne judgment. So it's extremely important that even now we are witnesses, good witnesses, the light of the world, the salt of the earth, the ambassadors for Christ, so that when those individuals come up in the white throne judgment, they will remember that we, as God's people, did a kindness to them, or we showed them some love or service or benefit or blessings. And so it's so important now that we set that right example. Let's turn to that uh, briefly in Matthew 25. Matthew, the 25th chapter. And here we see, again, the responsibility we have of being a light in the world because eventually all those with whom we come in contact, if they're not called now, are going to be in the white throne judgment. Will they remember your kindness or will they remember your poor example? Here in Matthew, the 25th chapter, uh, Jesus gives us this instruction. Matthew 25, if I can find it here briefly. And uh, how we must be good examples to others. And uh, he says the parable of the talents. And uh, where he says uh, his Lord came to him, well done. Verse 23, Matthew 25. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. And so they were wondering, well, when did we do these things? When did we show kindness to others? And Jesus says, inasmuch as you have done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. So we have to be that kind of example. As he says in verse uh, 40, And the king will answer and say to them, As surely I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. That's Matthew 25 and verse 40. So we have to now be ambassadors for Christ. We need to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth so that we will have a positive influence on those who are in the white throne judgment that they more easily can turn to Christ and to repent and be saved and be a part of God's family forever. How long will that white throne judgment be? Well, let's turn to Isaiah, the 65th chapter, Isaiah 65. We get an indication here of how possibly long the white throne judgment will be. Isaiah 65 Again, verse 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. So we have a context here actually transitioning and looking ahead to the new Jerusalem at the time when there are new heavens and new earth. So what we read here precedes that in just a short time. He says, verse 25, uh, verse 20, no more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. So we infer from this that there is a possible period of 100 years to comprise the white throne judgment, that period of time. 
The activities will be similar to those of the, the, the millennium. As it goes on to say in verse 21, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. And my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain. Notice in verse 25, the similar verse as in Isaiah 11:6, and is typified on the seal of the living church of God. Verse 25, the wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the eternal. So we look forward to that time of the white throne judgment. Let's turn back again to Isaiah, the 20th chapter, Isaiah 20. What happens after the white throne judgment? Turn to Revelation, the 20th chapter, Revelation 20. Again, we realize the sequence of events that uh, starting with chapter 20, uh, Satan, the devil is put away. And so when we realize that, when does that take place? That's on the 10th day of the seventh month. And the first day of the seventh month is the Feast of Trumpets. So that, we realize, is when the seventh trumpet blasts, on the first day of the seventh month, the resurrection, the first resurrection takes place, the saints meet Christ in the air and the clouds, and it says, we shall ever be with the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15 points out it's the last trumpet, the seventh trumpet, when that resurrection takes place. Then what happens? Then the wedding supper takes place. During the time, of course, the seven last plagues are poured out over a period of time. Then on the tenth day of the month, after we have the wedding supper with Christ, what happens? Satan the devil is put away. But notice chapter 19, just before Satan is put away, what happens? You have Armageddon, the last part of one of the last parts of the seven last plagues. And it says in verse 14 of Revelation 19, And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. And again, who's clothed in white linen? Well, read back in verse 8. And to her was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So in context, we have the marriage supper mentioned here, Revelation 19, verse 9. The wife has made herself ready, verse 7. And now the saints with Christ, the armies in heaven, come with him to put down the enemies of righteousness. And, of course, you can read what happens in Zechariah, the 14th chapter, how the enemies of Christ are totally conquered and punished. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, Revelation 19:15, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And the armies gather together to make war, verse 19, against him. And the beast and the false prophet are thrown into a lake of fire. That is mentioned in verse 20. Then, in chapter 20, 
Then on the tenth day of the seventh month, remember we're resurrected on the first day of the seventh month, the Feast of Trumpets, the last trumpet that sounds, as the First Corinthians 15 states, and as the trumpet that sounds in First Thessalonians 4. Then on the tenth day, Satan is put away. And so we have a thousand years of peace without the deceiving influence of Satan the devil. And then the thousand-year reign of Christ takes place. Then verse 11 of Revelation 20, the white throne judgment takes place. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, verse 12, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to the works by the things that were written in the books. So we've mentioned earlier how judgment takes place over a period of time. And we believe that that time will be roughly a 100 years, as indicated in Isaiah 65. Just think about those who've gone through terrible tragedies and need comforting. And we read in Isaiah how Christ the shepherd will comfort little lambs, those who have been injured, persecuted, tortured, killed, maimed, who will be in that resurrection, and Christ will comfort them in the white throne judgment. That's a positive part of the white throne judgment. And then those, of course, who were judged already, like Sodom and Gomorrah, in burning brimstone, will remember the pain and suffering of their flesh burning off their bones, will be more teachable. They will want to listen and be taught. They will have that opportunity to to change. But then what happens after the white throne judgment? Reading in context here in Revelation, the 20th chapter, following here, uh, verse 12, verse 13, the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead that were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then what happens? Verse 14, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Now, theologians define the second death as separation from God or other kinds of abstract definitions. The second death is death from which there is no resurrection. Malachi 4 talks about the wicked shall be ashes under the feet of the righteous. So the wicked will be totally burned up. There is no immortal soul that's going to live on forever. They will be totally burned up. There is no resurrection from the second death. And anyone found not written, and anyone not found written in the book of life, verse 15, Revelation 20, was cast into the lake of fire. So there really is a lake of fire. And people don't quite understand the matter of hellfire. They think it's eternal hellfire. It's hellfire and judgment that goes on for a long period of time. There's fire burning, as the we already saw in Revelation 19, where the beast and the false prophet are thrown into a lake of fire. There's fire burning all throughout the millennium. And then it consumes, after the white throne judgment, takes over the whole earth, and the whole earth is purified by fire. You might want to hold your place here in Revelation 21 and turn to Second Peter, the third chapter. Second Peter, the third chapter, starting with verse 7. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire 
until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Yes, the incorrigibly wicked will be thrown into the lake of fire. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Second Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In other words, God gives us plenty of time to repent. And some get a little anxious and say, well, where, where's his promise? He's not around. God is just giving them and all of us time to repent, time to overcome our carnal human nature, time to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, time to replace human nature as God creates in us his glorious divine nature of sincerity and truth and perfect, righteous, godly character. Verse 10 of Second Peter 3, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. Now let me again interject here. You've seen our telecast on the day of the Lord. I hope you have our compact disc, uh, the two-part series on the day of the Lord, and that you've heard it. The day of the Lord technically, of course, is the the seventh seal, which is pictured by the Feast of Trumpets. All seven trumpets, the seventh seal, comprise the day of the Lord. But the day of the Lord, in the larger sense, continues on, as Peter brings out here in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. So God makes it plain. I'll have a little cup of tea here while we're talking. God makes it plain that the whole earth is going to be purified with fire. It's going to become molten. It will be purified totally by fire. Therefore, verse 11, shall all these things be, will be dissolved. What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved beyond fire and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Shouldn't we be aware of that? And shouldn't that motivate us to change and to overcome? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Turn now back to Revelation, the 21st chapter, Revelation 21. So we see after the white throne judgment, the lake of fire then expands all over the earth and the incorrigibly wicked, as we saw, thrown into the lake of fire. So at that point in time, at the end of the white throne judgment, the earth is totally purified with fire, and there will be no physical human beings left alive. There will be either ashes under the feet of the righteous, or we will be immortalized, glorified children of God. That will be the that phase of God's plan. Revelation 21, verse 1. 
Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. The earth is now totally purified. Now God the Father can come to a purified earth. Notice that in verse 2. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now who is the bride of Christ? Those who are in the first resurrection, and again, you might hold your place. You look back here. I referred to it earlier, uh, Revelation 19.7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. Who is that? That is the church, the body of Christ. Those who are in the first resurrection are the bride, the wife of Christ. Where do they dwell? They dwell in the new Jerusalem, which is called here the as a bride adorned for her husband. Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. We all look forward to that day, that day of eternal joy, that day of eternal peace, that day when there'll be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. And notice the next verse, or next sentence, there shall be no more pain. Many of us have experienced extreme pain, and we look forward to that time. For the former things are passed away when there shall be no more pain. Verse 5, Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. But notice again at the end of uh, verse, well, start with verse 7. He who overcomes, that's what we're all striving to do as God's first fruits. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. We know from Hebrews, the second chapter, that all things, tapanta, means the all. Everything seen and unseen. The universe will live in a different dimension where millions of light years are no obstacle for the children, the sons of God who've inherited all things. And, of course, it tells us in Romans, the 8th chapter, that we are joint heirs with Christ. We are co-heirs with Christ. We are heirs of God, and we inherit all things. He goes on to say in verse 8, But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake, which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So we look forward to that time when only righteousness will dwell. We look forward to the white throne judgment and beyond. And this last great day gives us that vision of the coming kingdom of God, the white throne judgment, and the inheritance that God gives his saints that continue on beyond. He is going to create all things new, and we have a part in that new Jerusalem. In the meantime, of course, we need to overcome. 
We are the bridegroom of Christ. Now notice what it says here in verse 20. Revelation, sorry, Revelation 22. Uh, Let's start with verse 6. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angels to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. So we understand the sequence of prophetic events. We are living in the end time. And we need to be alert and awake, sober and aware and yearning for the coming kingdom. Revelation 22, verse 7. Behold, Jesus says, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the word of the prophecy of this book. We need to again be reading the book of Revelation, internalizing it, and looking forward to its promises and the ultimate destiny that God has for all of us. Let's start in verse 12. Jesus again says, Revelation 22, verse 12, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. He's talking about the coming, second coming of Christ, when we will be in that first resurrection. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Verse 14, Revelation 22. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers, sexually immoral, and murderers and idolaters, and whoever loves and practices a lie. We all need to take warning and understand we need the purity of heart. We need that integrity. We need to be able to live by every word of God and to have the Ten Commandments written on our hearts and minds, the spiritual application of them as a way of life, as a part of our very character, as a part of our very eternal character. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you that these things in the churches I am the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Now, as you notice through chapter 21, chapter 22, that Jesus is the Lamb. We are the Lamb's wife, the bride of Christ, the very church of God, the body of Christ. Notice that Christ's sacrifice and his love for the church will always be remembered. He is the Lamb. Notice that in several places mentioned here in Revelation 21. Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. Revelation 21, 9. And then Revelation 21, 14, he talks about the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The Lamb will always be remembered. Verse 22 of Revelation 21, But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And we, of course, are the very pillars in that temple, signifying an intimate relationship with Christ. How awesome that is. But notice, here is another reference to the Lamb in chapter 22. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Even in the very last chapter of the Bible, Jesus as the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist said in John 1, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
his love, his sacrifice, his gifts to us will always be remembered. Verse 3, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. So we praise God for his calling, that we will always remember the sacrifice of Christ. Of all the billions who have ever lived, relatively few will be in the first resurrection. God has a plan of salvation for all humanity. We remember Ephesians 3, verses 14 and 15, where the Apostle Paul says, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. God has an awesome purpose. We are called to be his family, his glorified, born-again, immortalized children for all eternity. What an awesome plan God has. God has called us as his first fruits, as the bride of Christ. We are called to dwell in the new Jerusalem. And we look forward to Christ's coming. We look forward to the millennium. We look forward to the white throne judgment. And we look forward to salvation for all humanity. So, brethren, let's fulfill our mission. Let's be lights and be faithful witnesses to our friends, our relatives, and even strangers, so that they can be converted in the white throne judgment because we have been faithful witnesses of Christ. Let's prepare the world, the church, our family, and ourselves for the second coming of Christ, for that great event when we will be turned from mortal to immortal. We will be glorified as God's immortalized, glorified children. As it says in Colossians 3, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, so shall we also appear with him in glory. We have a wonderful future to look forward to. So let's look forward to the kingdom, the white throne judgment, and eternity beyond. And be sure to come back this afternoon to hear the final message from our presiding evangelist, Dr. Roderick Meredith. May God bless you all.